Do you find that when hanging out with friends and family, you look up and realize that every single one of you is on your phone because you have nothing to talk about? Or maybe you're like me and you're just scared to go outside because you've made too many terrifying videos and realize the world is a scary place and so you don't have any friends to hang out with. Either way, I've got something that will help you stay in the loop and not lose your mind. It's called Hunt a Killer, and we're lucky to have them sponsoring us on this video because it's a match made in heaven. It's awesome because it launches you right into the middle of an ongoing murder mystery investigation. Hunt a Killer is one of the fastest growing subscription boxes in the country with tens of thousands of subscribers and an online community connecting them all. I love it because you get to decode ciphers, examine clues, and solve puzzles all in the name of hunting down a killer. You get to actually sift through evidence, case files, and even audio recordings until you crack the case. Hunt a Killer starts at just $25 a box, plus a portion of the proceeds from every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation, an organization that helps real-life cold cases get solved, which is something we should all support. So check out Hunt a Killer and use our discount code SCARY for 20% off your first box. Just click the link in the description below and get 20% off with the discount code SCARY. Five murder mysteries you need to know about. Turn on the news and you'll likely hear someone has been killed or murdered, but not all murders end up in the headlines. In fact, most never get the attention they deserve, and the cases on this list prove just that. These are five murder mysteries you need to know about. Number five, Oki Kite Jr. It was May 24, 1994. 53-year-old Oki Al Kite Jr. had failed to show up for work. Although a North Carolina native, he swapped his hometown life to pursue one in the big city. Soon he found himself as an accountant for a big-time corporate firm in Aurora, Colorado. Because suburban Denver isn't exactly cheap, Al decided to advertise for a tenant sharing his residence at 2002 South Helena Street. The home was too big for him and he had a basement apartment he left unused. An earlier tenant who was leased in for a couple of years told him they were moving out in a few months. So Al prepared to find a new tenant, and it wasn't long before a man by the name of Robert Cooper answered the ad. The old tenants left in May of 2004, and Al decided to accept Cooper's application without checking any of the details. On May 22nd, the day Cooper was to visit, Al took his girlfriend to the airport. Although barely dating for a few months, the two decided to make their relationship exclusive. After he got home, he spent the afternoon helping a neighbor fix a leaky pipe. After Linda arrived to her destination, she called Al to let him know she got there safe. They spoke for a bit before saying goodbye. Al was expecting Cooper to arrive any moment. On May 24th, Monday, Al never showed up for work. It was unlike him, according to his employer. His boss called his sister, who then got in touch with the Aurora Police Department to arrange for a welfare check. Police walked inside the home after no one answered. They looked around and everything seemed okay. The living room was fine, the bedroom was clear. Then they decided to check the basement, and it was there they knew something was immediately wrong. 
As they walked down the stairs, they saw the wall and the floor covered with blood. There they found Al's body and immediately knew his death was a painful one. One of the detectives said it was the worst he'd ever seen. They noted Al had a wound in the back of his head. It's likely he was hit there from behind as he was walking down the basement stairs. During the investigation, they noticed his hands and feet were bound with a cord. The two were tied in hogtie fashion. From there, the killer tortured Al for hours, stabbing him multiple times using knives from his own kitchen. In the end, he suffered 22 stab wounds. Police say he likely died just hours after speaking with his girlfriend on Saturday, May 22nd. Neighbors saw the mysterious new tenant leave Sunday morning. Detectives discovered the killer stayed in Al's home eating his food, sleeping in his bed, and even wearing some of his clothing. The killer also took tedious steps to make sure there was no forensic traces of him. He soaked the kitchen knives in bleach afterward and wiped down almost everything, leaving behind nothing. Police traced whatever lead they could find. They found Al's phone and a burner phone belonging to the mysterious Cooper. Both were dumped in the Denver area where transients frequented. The killer knew it would throw off detectives. Police first thought the motive was a robbery, but while Cooper withdrew money from Al's ATM, he only took $1,000 and nothing more, even though he had access to thousands of dollars in the bank account. Police later deduced the killer likely just wanted to kill someone. He tortured Al not to get any information, but simply for the thrill. He likely targeted him because he lived alone and was generally kind. The crime showed the killer prepared and planned everything, taking extra steps to keep the police confused. Countless theories began floating around about the mysterious Robert Cooper and why he killed Al Kite Jr. Some say he was killed in connection with a case he was working on as lead accountant since his company handled big-name clients like Surrey Nuclear Plant and the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories. Then others said it was connected to the real estate market. A third theory is that Al's killing may have been a practice kill. Regardless of the theories, Oki Al-Kite Jr.'s death remains unsolved. Number 4. Vanessa Bodden It was 1989, the Bodden family was getting ready to celebrate the holidays. On December 14th, Vanessa Bodden, who was 19 years old, was sitting on the front porch of her cousin's home across from theirs in New Orleans. Between 8 to 9 p.m., two neighborhood boys came up and spoke with Vanessa. Tiffany, a relative, saw a heated conversation starting between Vanessa and one of the boys. One guy pushed or shoved Vanessa a bit, but the other guy stopped him. The two boys left and one said he would call her around 11. In the early morning of December 15th, Vanessa's brother got up to go to the bathroom. He saw Vanessa watching TV, sensing she was still waiting for that phone call. Afterward, her brother headed back to bed. Around 5.30 or 6 a.m., Vanessa's grandmother, who lived across the street, peered through her window and saw Vanessa outside. She was about to call out to her but said nothing. At 6.30 a.m., her brother got up again to find the back door open. He didn't think anything was wrong, and then he left for work. It was Vanessa's mother who noticed she wasn't in her bed. She also saw the back door open, and later on, when Vanessa still hadn't returned, her mother called her friends, asking if they had seen her. 
After that, they called police asking for help. The family waited, hoping to hear news of Vanessa, but days went by without nothing. Christmas came and went, and the family still didn't know where their daughter was. On January 4th, three weeks after she went missing, they heard the grim news. A body was found inside a shed in an abandoned building just a block away from her home. The building's caretaker was walking around inspecting the property because it had recently been sold. That's when he found the body and reported it. Dental records showed it was Vanessa Bodden. She was badly beaten and they had burned her face and torso along with one of her legs. Then they slit her throat, but not before raping her. Detectives interviewed the two boys seen coming up to Vanessa that evening prior to her disappearance. One of them, named Charlie, was said to be her boyfriend, even though he had a girlfriend and a child. Despite his name coming up several times initially, her family never heard from the detectives again. Over the years, Vanessa Bodden's case went cold. To add insult to injury, the Nolens police purged their department evidence room between 1999 and 2002, causing them to throw away crucial evidence, including Vanessa's rape kit and evidence from over 55 open cases. So today, the case remains open, but will likely remain a mystery. Number 3. Stacy Stites Bastrop County, Texas is an idyllic rural getaway that has photogenic pine tree forests where many movies and shows have been filmed. It was the early morning of April 23, 1996, when 19-year-old Stacy Stites had failed to show up for her job. Her co-workers knew her for being punctual. Despite being young, Stacy was engaged to marry a police officer named Jimmy Fennell. The two had been sharing an apartment, and on the morning of her disappearance, she drove Fennell's red pickup, having left her home at around 3.30 a.m. Two hours later, the pickup truck was found abandoned in a local high school parking lot. There was no sign of Stacy, and in the afternoon, her family heard the tragic news. Somebody picking flowers in the pine forest found her body. She was found partially clothed and strangled using her own belt. DNA was discovered on her body, and it belonged to a male contributor. It was later traced to a man named Rodney Reed, a black man who was arrested in 1997 for the crime. They found his DNA in Stacy Stites vaginal canal. The prosecution argued Reed raped, assaulted, strangled, and sodomized Stacy. Aside from his DNA, no other physical evidence tied him to the crime, and he was convicted by an all-white jury. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Reed always maintained his innocence. Despite numerous appeals, which were always denied, Rodney kept proclaiming he didn't commit the crime. For many, it's simple logic. His DNA was found in her, so it must be him. But many question this. Reed and his team argue there's a reason why his DNA was found on Stacy. It was because the two were having an affair. He said they even had consensual sex the night before she disappeared. The problem was Reed's original defender had failed to present his defense thoroughly. Despite having witnesses who could attest to Reed's alibi on the day Stites disappeared, as well as attest to their relationship, only two witnesses were brought in on the trial. In fact, his original defense fully ignored and failed to call most witnesses for the jury to hear. A 
Apart from that, certain DNA evidence found on two beer cans near the body belonged to possible potential suspects. A police officer named Ed Salmella, who committed suicide later on, and Officer David Hall, a friend and neighbor of Fennel. The defense was never informed that this evidence ever even existed. As for Fennel, Stacy's fiance, he was the first suspect. He was asked to take a polygraph and failed twice. Despite this, their apartment was never searched because according to the police there was no probable cause, when in fact, since it was the last place Stites was seen alive, it should have been searched first. Later on, more people came forward citing Fennel could be the guilty one. A woman said she witnessed a conversation between Stites and Fennel where the officer threatened his young wife if she ever cheated on him. Another witness also heard Fennel utter, you got what you deserved at Stites own funeral. There was even a witness who saw Stites and Fennel fighting outside a convenience store at 5 a.m., two hours before they found her dead. Fennel had been accused of being abusive to women he was convicted for kidnapping and assaulting a woman in his custody in 2007. He was sentenced, then subsequently released in 2018 for that crime. Today, Reed still sits in prison. While his team is fighting for him to get a new fair trial, a judge in July scheduled his execution date for November 20th. Various witnesses and petitions have rallied around Reed for him to get a retrial. Dr. Phil even interviewed Reed hoping to get his case in the forefront. Number two, quadruple murder. It was November 2nd, 2015, when four bodies were found inside a home in Pendleton, South Carolina. The victims were a married couple, Michael, who was 59, and Kathy Scott, who was 60, along with their mothers, Barbara, who was 80, that was Michael's mother, and 82-year-old Violet Taylor, who was Kathy's mom. In the morning, Kathy's daughter Amy went to check on her mom when she didn't see her walking the dog. She dropped by their home to see if she was okay. When she knocked on the door, it just pushed open, so she walked in. She flipped the light on because it was dark, and that's when she saw the victims. All three of the ladies were found dead in the living room while Michael was found inside the bedroom. Police couldn't find any sign of forced entry in the home. They believe that whoever killed the victims either knew them well or at least were let inside the home at some point and caught them off guard. Detectives believe the murders took place around Sunday, November 1st. Although no arrests have been made, four years on, police are said to be closer to solving the crime than ever before. The sheriff that inherited the case said they're still doing forensic tests and are confident the results will provide them with a concrete answer. They do have a strong suspect and are anxiously waiting for the results. The case is currently ongoing. Number 1. David Most Born in Connellsville, Pennsylvania, David Most had a rough childhood. His father left his mother when he was just seven years old, both his parents also had their own issues. Moss' father was orphaned when he was 12 while his mother was diagnosed as a psychotic. By the time he was 9, his mother had David confined to a mental institution. According to her, David tried to set fire to his younger brother's bed and also tried to drown him. But the social worker in the case described the mother as being narcissistic, 
disturbed, psychotic, and needy. In the end, his mother admitted she simply didn't want him. According to David's brother, David was molested at age 13 when he lived at a children's home. As David got older, he worked in construction for his uncle in Georgia. He was fired for crashing a truck. David tried to go home, but his mom didn't want him. Instead, she brought him to enlist in the army. And by 1972, he was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. Two years later, David killed a 13-year-old boy named James McClister. He was court-martialed, then convicted of manslaughter and larceny and was sentenced to four years in prison. Although he requested not to be paroled, he was still released in 1977. And in 1979, Moss stabbed a friend while he was sleeping. He was tried but never served time, and by 1981, he decided he wanted to find and kill the boy who once molested him. But since he couldn't find him, he decided to kill a 15-year-old named Donald Jones instead. That same year, he also stabbed a 14-year-old and was sentenced to five years for bodily harm. David was sentenced to 35 years in jail in 1994. He received credit for the time he was held as well as good behavior, so he was released in 1999. Despite recommendations from the prosecutor for him not to be released, including a five-page letter from David Most himself requesting not to be let out of prison, the Department of Corrections never listened. It wasn't until 2003 when David Moss was finally arrested for strangling James Ragani, a 16-year-old teen. Moss had taken the boy's body and covered it in concrete in his basement home in Hammond, Indiana. Two other bodies were found with him, 19-year-old Nicholas James and 13-year-old Michael Dennis. Two years after, David pled guilty to the three murders, this time, he was sentenced to three consecutive life terms. Once in prison, he asked to be placed in isolation. He was remorseful of what he had done. Just a month after he was sentenced and interviewed in January of 2006, Moss committed suicide. He hung himself in his cell using a bedsheet that was tied to his cell bars. On his suicide note, he admitted to five killings, including the three boys. He also apologized to the victim's families. So there were five murder mysteries you need to know about. Thousands of people get murdered each year. Some cases are solved and others remain a mystery. Some of the ones mentioned here are still open, so if anybody has any information, please call your local authorities. If you enjoyed watching this video, then please subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell. We have new videos every Wednesday and Saturday that we know you'll want to check out. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you soon.